to 1 Peter chapter 5. Back to 1 Peter chapter 5. One Peter chapter five. We'll start reading again in verse one. Going to read down to verse uh, eleven. It says the elders which are among you, I exhort, who also, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Brethren, I tell you what, that is something that needs to be preached a lot in churches today. That needs to be heard by many preachers today. I know that that exhortation is necessarily to the pastors and to the teachers uh, and they need to hear that, uh, that they are to feed the flock of God, and, and that just what's being fed to the flock of God nowadays is not the food that God intended, is not what God wants fed to his sheep. It says, neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Matter of fact, that word, uh, um, Oversight, that word, uh, pastor, uh, it, uh, it means to be an example. To be an example. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, in the same manner, just as, just as Peter is exhorting the elders to Submit to the flock by being servicing with the word of God to the flock, feeding the flock. How do we, how do we serve, serve one another? We serve one another together by coming here and fellowship, shipping in the doctrine of Jesus Christ. By encouraging each other in the doctrine of Christ. We talked about that last week. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. We talked about that last week, right? Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And today we're going to talk about this verse here. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a little while, a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we ask that you would be with us this morning, that you might help me to minister the word, that you might speak to your people, and by your spirit teach us all today through this word. Father, we pray that you would exalt your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that uh, those that are listening and watching, Lord, that they too would be blessed, and that you would minister to them. 
And Lord, we just pray that we'd be honoring and glorifying to you in all that we do and say. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Well, brethren, if you remember, we started looking at these verses last week. And uh, I began last week and basically just got an introduction to really what I was wanting to get to in verse 10. But by way of capitulation, let me just kind of remind you guys, in case you have forgotten, surely you haven't, but in case you have. If you remember, last week we went back into Luke and we looked at the account where Peter was uh, told by the Lord Jesus that uh, he was going to uh, be sifted by Satan and that uh, he would deny him three times before the cock crows. And Peter, of course, as, as proud as the person he was, uh, he's like, no, that's not going to happen. I'm going to follow you all the way to death. And the Lord said, you know, the, that Satan had desired to sift you, but whenever uh, you have been turned or whenever you have repented, whenever you have uh, come back, uh, then uh, strengthen the brethren, uh, feed the flock. Uh, and so we've seen this, this, uh, this experience that Peter had, this humbling experience that Peter had, that as zealous as he was for Christ, as, as, uh, as dedicated as he was to the Lord to follow him and, uh, and his right hand man, uh, and, and everything, that still, that the Lord had to send him through sifting by Satan so that he might be humbled. And we talked about that last week, the importance of humility, uh, that God uses the sifting of Satan in our lives, the, the humbling effects that we get by being brought down through affliction, through hardships, through trials, through, uh, uh, through instances of our lives that just really show us how feeble we are, how frail we are, how sinful we are, uh, and how God uses that to strengthen us. And matter of fact, I ended up going back and naming the, uh, the, the title of last week's message, Strengthening Through Sifting. And we saw how Peter, after he had been sifted by Satan and had gone through that humbling experience of seeing here I was zealous for the Lord and I'm the one that ended up denying him three times within just a short amount of time with cursings. That's horrible, you know. Well, if Peter can do that, I'm sure we all can do that. And we do do that, right? We all do that. And so we saw how through that, though, the Lord taught Peter something. And if you remember at the end of that story, whenever the Lord resurrected from the grave and he came back and met with the disciples, and they were there uh, eating uh, around the campfire, eating together. And he talked to Peter, and he said, you know, do you love me? And Peter kept saying, you know that I love you, you know that I love you. And he kept saying, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. What was he saying? He's telling what he told him before he was even sifted. He said, strengthen your brethren, feed the sheep. And so now Peter is doing that very thing. And after that, we see Peter did that. He was... He was the one who stood up on the day of Pentecost and he preached that marvelous sermon about what Christ had done and 3,000 souls were saved not because Peter preached or because Peter was a good orator because the Spirit of God had opened up the hearts and the minds of people that were of the elect people that were there and they were converted by the preaching of the gospel. But Peter preached that and we've seen that he began to feed the sheep 
And here he's writing to the sheep of God scattered all over the place. Uh, and to us today, as this has been preserved for us on down, because we are people of like precious faith. We are people who are uh, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, as we see in his second letter, he said, those who have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. These letters were written to feed the sheep of God. And any pastor who is a pastor of the biblical sense should be a pastor who feeds the flock of God. And of course, the question that arose last week as we began to look at these passages, these verses, is well, what is it that we are to feed the flock with um, that is going to be of any any good to them? What do we feed the flock with? Well, as we've seen here, uh, Peter, uh, as he's going down through here, says, "Feed the flock of God which is uh, among you, taking the oversight." And then he goes down a little bit further, and he says. He says, resist the devil. He said, be careful. The devil is out there like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But he says, but you resist him steadfast in the faith. So when we feed the flock to strengthen them, that's one of the reasons why we eat, right? Is to nourish us so that we'll be strengthened. Uh, so that we are, are rejuvenated. So that we uh, maintain our our, uh, our 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 life, you know, and I'm not saying that if you read your Bible more, it's going to ma- maintain your life more, but it is going to help you. Whenever you feed on God's Word and everything, it's going to keep you nourished in God's Word. It's going to keep your mind thinking upon the things of God as the Spirit of God keeps you and holds you uh, in those thoughts and uh, on those things about Christ. But he says here to st- uh, that we are to resist him in the faith, with the faith. So the things that we arm each other, what we feed each other, what we nourish ourselves on is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the faith of Jesus Christ, what he has done on our behalf, his faithfulness in coming and living perfectly uh, uh, to the law and, 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 and keeping the law on our behalf. Him dying in our place and being the substitute for our sin debt that we owed. Uh, for all the things that he did in his uh, righteous works, that is what we feed the flock with. Um, a lot of churches, they like to feed off of all kinds of other things, but we are to feed the flock, and that's where we are going to receive our nourishment, so to speak, is by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We often say it around here, and, and it's been said before by other men, is that do Christians need to keep hearing the gospel? Isn't the gospel something that you tell people that don't know Jesus? That's what the gospel's for. Whenever we get in here, we want to hear other things, you know. Tell us how to live, and tell us how to do this, and tell us how to do that. No, the gospel is only for the children of God. The gospel isn't for the reprobate. The reprobate was never intended to believe the gospel to begin with, but the gospel is the good news to them that believe. It's the power of God unto salvation to them that believe, those who have been given that precious faith that only comes to those who are born of God. The gospel is for them. It's to tell them the good news. That's what the gospel means. The gospel means good news. It's a declaration of good news, and that good news is only to the ones to whom the good news is for. 
Okay? If I came to my kids today and said, hey, good news. We're getting a new house. We're getting to move to a new house. Well, that'd be good news to us. But if I went uh, to, you know, uh, one of y'all's friends that you play video games with and said, hey, good news. We're getting a new house. Well, that's just news to them because it don't pertain to them. But to us, it's good news. Why? Because the news is about us. The news is for us. And the news is affecting us. The gospel is a message for the elect of God because it is affecting the elect of God. The gospel is something that actually is news about them. What Christ did for them. And so whenever we preach the gospel... We are preaching to the people for whom that message is intended to. Just like this, these messages were written to specific people. But God has preserved them for us today, but it's not for everyone today. It's still for a specific group of people, the people of God. Okay? So when Peter is writing these things to feed the flock, how do we feed the flock? Well, we feed the flock with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We speak about the faith of Jesus Christ. We speak not, and that's not our faith being exercised. That's the faith of Jesus Christ being enacted as the one who came as the substitute. The one coming on our behalf. The one who came and brought forth a righteousness that was then, that righteousness that he, he had there in all his obedience and his death, that righteousness is imputed unto all of his elect throughout all time. They have been given the elect of God before the foundation of the world, but it was all based upon what Jesus would come and do at that specific point in history when he came. What he did was laid to all the Old Testament people's accounts, it's laid to all the New Testament people's accounts, whether they be Old Testament or New Testament, all of them are saved the exact same way they are saved because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That being imputed to their account. Them not having anything to do with it. That's what we feed each other. Uh, submitting one another. Servicing one another. How do we serve one another? Is it also caring for each other? Yes. Do I care for my brethren in the church? Absolutely. Do we pray for them? Do we check in on them when they're sick? You know, do we help them if they need help? Yes, we do all those things. But primarily serving one another is serving them in the encouragement of the Word of God. Encouraging them in the Gospel. Encouraging them, encouraging them in what Christ has done on their behalf. Now, the reason I say all that is because Paul, uh, Peter is dealing with the specific purpose in these letters. And the specific purpose in all these letters that he's writing here is the fact that there are people that are coming up who are false teachers, who are preaching a false gospel. They are preaching antichrist things. They are scoffers. They are heresy uh, preachers. Okay? And so Peter is strengthening the brethren feeding the flock with good food because a lot of bad food is being given to them through other means. And so Peter is dealing with these things 
And he's saying, listen, whenever somebody comes, just like Paul when he dealt with the Galatians, remember whenever we went through Galatians and we seen that the Judaizers had come in and began to preach that, oh yeah, you're saved by grace, but you also have to keep the law of Moses and to continue to keep the commandments of God uh, to stay saved. Uh, and then they even went so far to say, well, yeah, you, you even got to do it to get saved. Okay? That was what, like Peter is dealing with, false accused or false brethren coming in and bringing these things in. Well, whenever you start to hear those that preaching, you got to keep the law. You got to keep the law. If you're not keeping the law, if you're if you claim to be a Christian and you're believing in Christ, yeah, you can be leave on Him as your Savior. But if you don't claim Him as your Lord, where you're obeying His every command, then you're not really saved. You just have a lit profession. And all these things, whenever people start saying those types of things and saying we have to keep the law to be righteous before God, to stay righteous before God, then that is the devil, as we seen last week, coming in as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The devil is coming in and taking those false accusations because we know the Bible exhorts us to keep the commands of Christ. The Bible exhorts us to be obedient. The Bible exhorts us to walk in a manner that is in keeping with the Word of God. It exhorts us to do those things. But whenever Satan comes in, he takes that truth and then he turns it in such a way where he says, look, you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to keep doing that. And so what, do, what does the flesh begin to do? It begins to crank up its 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 uh, uh, self-righteous desires and self-righteous works and thinks that it can it can please God by well let me get to work I need to start doing religious things if I start doing religious things then Jesus will be happy with me again and see this is where Satan attacks gets our eyes off of the gospel which is how we obey Christ. How do we obey Christ according to Christ? By looking to Him and believing. We obey Christ by believing on Him. We believe by faith looking to Christ as our perfect obedience. Looking to Christ as the one who has taken all of our sin and therefore there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We look to Christ. And so we feed each other we sustain each other. We encourage each other. We build each other up in the gospel. Why? Because the world, the religious systems in the world, and Satan, who is the god of this world, so to speak, he's not over God, and he's not actually a god, but he is a ruler over this, this world, as the Bible says, under God's control, of course. He is... Seeking God's people to devour them by filling their mind with false teaching, false thinking, and especially the false belief that their righteousness can be accepted by God. Your righteousness will never be accepted by God. And so we saw last week that God takes us then through times of sifting to bring us down. Whenever we become puffed up, we think, hey, we're doing all right. We're doing pretty good. 
what does the Lord do? He chastens us. He knocks us down. Just as soon as, you know, we get the most we we was talking about it in uh, uh watching sports and stuff, you know, yesterday. Anytime anybody starts getting up there and they start boasting and they start boasting and every time it, it always seems that what happens? They ended up getting knocked out. You know, I was watching uh, some reels of boxing matches uh, and how guys come in and before the fights they get all up in the guy's face and they're making all these claims and doing all this stuff. And then when they get in the ring, they're doing all this, you know, flashy stuff, showing off and the other guy's just calm and collected and... Then whenever they go to get their instructions, they're right in their face and doing all these things. And then when they come out, they may come out with their hands down, taunting the other guy with their face and stuff like that. Those are the guys that end up getting knocked out. <laughs> you know? As I said last week, pride comes before a fall. See, the Lord teaches us through that sifting of Satan. He teaches us through those hardships and trials. But he says here in verse 9, he says, Whom resisteth steadfast in the face, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. There is nothing new under the sun. Everything that is going on in your life is going on in other people's lives. Listen, you're not unique in the fact that you have not experienced something that somebody else has not experienced. Someone said, oh, you've not experienced it. You know, you just don't know what I've gone through. Oh, yeah. Everybody knows. Everybody has been tempted to sin. Everybody has the same same temptations. Everybody has the same hardships. We all go through the same thing. Have I been picked on? I've been picked on. Have I been ridiculed? I've been ridiculed. Have I been called bad names? I've been called bad names. Have I been excluded, left out? I've been excluded, left out. Have I been betrayed by a friend? I've been betrayed by a friend. Have I been hated? Yes. Have I been falsely accused? A whole lot. Have I been lied to? I've been lied to. Everybody has gone through the same thing. And that's what the Lord is saying. He said, listen, all of this is happening. It's not just you, but it's the Lord's way of keeping us humbled before Him. But whenever those temptations come, whenever those trials come, whenever the hardships come, whenever the testing and the sifting comes, he says, resist steadfast in the faith. What are we to do when those trials come? He didn't say, I'm going to remove them. He said, during the trials through the trials, in the midst of the trials, he said, resist steadfast in the faith. Resist Satan's call to turn. Turn away from God. Get mad at God. Give up on God. But even more than that, brethren, because a true child of God wouldn't do that, more than that, what Satan tries to do is said, you're not living up to your standard." You better get to work and do all those religious things so God will be happy with you. And so, like I said, what do we do? We begin thinking that if we keep all these things, and so now we're not trusting that the Lord is enough, we think that now what we are doing is going to make up for what the Lord is unhappy with us about. But the Lord wants us to remember one thing. What Christ has done. 
And so that's why it goes to verse 10. Resist the devil. Be sober, he says. Be vigilant. He says, don't get your mind messed up. Whenever someone's not sober, we talked about last week, whenever somebody's drunk, what happens? They're not thinking right. They're not thinking right. For one, their, 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 their head is all, you know, cloudy. They can't make a correct reaction. Their, their reactions are slow. Their reactions may be way off. You know, I've seen guys that's been drunk and they go to reach for something and they miss it completely. They try to get up and walk and they can't walk a straight line. If they can even get up. Most of them wet themselves. They, I mean, just they lose all function. Why? Their mind is not sober. But the Bible says be sober. Have your mind right. Keep thinking right thoughts because there's going to be these thoughts that's going to be coming that Satan's going to try to bring into your mind. And it says be vigilant, meaning be watchful of these things. You know, like I tell you kids, whenever we're watching these shows and you always hear me bringing up, well, that's satanic, well, that's demonic, well, that's part of this Satan system, well, that's part of that witchcraft system. Pointing out these things, what does that mean? That's being vigilant. Recognizing, hey, that's the ploys of Satan to slowly and try to try to easily manipulate your mind. We see those things, we recognize them for what they are, Right? And so we are to be vigilant whenever Satan is attacking and we hear somebody preaching. You gotta keep the law. You gotta keep the law. You gotta keep the law. Whenever we hear somebody preaching that you're not good enough or you can lose your salvation or you can, you know, whenever we start hearing the things that come away from the gospel, we need to be sober. We need to be vigilant, watchful of these things. And whenever those things come, be steadfast in the faith. Resist the devil by the word of God. Resist the devil by what the gospel tells us. And so Paul, or excuse me, Peter, he wanted to say Paul. Peter, in verse 10, goes like, says this, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered, not before, to keep you from suffering, but after that ye have suffered a while, Make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. See, that's the purpose that God brings you through those things. is so that you might be perfect or mature, established, unmovable, strengthened, not weak, but strong, and settle you, keep you settled where, hey, I'm settled in this situation. I, I You know, I'm not double-minded. The Bible says a double-minded way is unstable, or a double-minded man is, is is unstable in all of these ways. If you're double-minded, if you're always well, I think it's this, well, I think it's this. And, and brethren, listen, I'm telling you, I'm just as guilty as anybody else, especially when it comes to law and grace. Well, i got to keep the law. i got to keep the law. i got to keep up a, an appearance of, of, of this and all this kind of stuff. And then I turn around and say, well, no, it's only by the grace of God. It's by Christ alone and you know, I'm no longer under the law and all like that. And then I turn away from that and come back. Well, i got to keep doing this and i got to keep doing this. I'm unstable in all my ways. I'm unsettled. And what does that do? It keeps me tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. But if we keep our minds steadfast in the faith of Jesus Christ and what He has done, what He has accomplished, and what the record says about us, then we won't be tossed to and fro with every window doctor. See, I've mentioned it to you guys before. I don't have to go out here and, and 
study what the Mormons believe or study what the Jehovah Witnesses believe. I don't have to study what the Catholics believe. I don't have to study what the Hungamunga tribe over in Africa believes. I don't have to study about what Hinduism and Buddhism and uh, uh, Muhammad and all those Muslims and all that stuff. I don't have to go and study all of their religions so that I might be able to know what's the truth and to teach them the truth. Now, all I need to know is what the truth says. Because whenever I see those things, if it doesn't align with the truth, then I know that's not true. And so the way that we are settled and the way that we are strengthened, the way that we are established and mature in, in the faith is by knowing what this says. Whenever we know what this says, then whenever all those other things that come to shake our understanding and faith comes, we'll know that's not right. That's not right. Well, that don't make sense. No, the Word of God says this. We resist steadfast in the faith, not with faith, although faith is involved because we're trusting in what God says, but He's saying to resist in the faith. Meaning that we are resisting in the doctrine of Christ. What has Christ taught us? That's what we resist with. Whenever they come and say this, this, and this, and we say, well, that's not what Christ said. That's not what the Word of God says. I don't care what John Gill says. I don't care what A.W. Pink says. I don't care what, you know, Billy Graham says. I don't care what anybody says. It. What does this say? That's what I'm concerned with. And so he has the purpose of bringing us through the sifting so that we might, with the Word of God, learn. Whenever I'm put through a trial, but I find something in the Word of God that strengthens me, that stables me, that settles me. Guess what? The next time that trial comes, I'll remember that. I know that. And now I'm established. But who does it come from? Where does it come from? Look at verse 10. But the God of all grace. The God of all grace. And that phrase, actually last week, is what really pulled me to look at these verses. Is, you know, we preach grace here all the time, right? Matter of fact, our church, we have called it Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. We talk about grace, grace all the time, right? We talk about distinguishing grace. Not just grace. Everybody talks about grace. But we are specific about what the Bible teaches about grace. Grace is something that is sovereign. That God is sovereign. And we look at this verse and we say, The God of all grace. And I got to thinking about that all grace. And how does that pertain? If, if God is pointing us to resist the fiery darts of the, of the devil with the faith, which comes from the Word of God, and the Word of God is written to reveal God, and here it's saying God is the God of all grace. Well, what does the God of all grace, how does that pertain to me resisting the devil, me resisting the fiery darts, me setting my mind and being settled and established and, and uh, unwavering and, and, and looking unto Jesus and, and feeding the flock. I mean, what has all that got to do with the God of all grace? Why did the Holy Spirit say, but the God of all grace? Why didn't he just say, but God, 
who had called us. But Jesus, who came, why didn't He just say Jehovah, or Yahweh, or the Great I Am? Why, why did He say, but the God of all grace, who had called us unto His eternal glory? Well, there's some things we can learn from that, brethren, I think. Think about that, all grace. Well, what kind of other grace is there? He's the, he's the God of all grace. That means that if there is any grace to be known, it comes from God. God is the originator of grace. Grace comes from God. Grace is not something that comes from man. Grace only comes from God. And He's the God of all grace. Let's think about some things. And I wrote a bunch of things down, and, and we're going to look at some verses that deal with that. But think about this. <clears throat> Let's just start at the very beginning. One thing that God is the God of grace in is the electing grace of God. The very fact that God, by grace, has chosen us. Has chosen His people to be saved. To be His. Look in Ephesians chapter 1. It says in verse 1, starting in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are in Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from where? From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace comes from Him, right? But let's look on. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. This is by His grace. Grace be to you. What grace? The grace that God has blessed you with all spiritual blessings, that He has chosen you before the foundation of the world, to be His people. We see His electing grace. We see His loving grace. Look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. one John 3 and verse 16. It's funny that John wrote the Gospel of John, and now he's writing this epistle of John. And in John 3.16, the verse is about God's love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in 1 John 3.16, he writes about God's love when he says, Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us. We see God's Electing grace, we see God's loving grace. God loves it. Now, there's more verses than this, but for time's sake, I'm not going to go. I just wanted to read a few. Romans 8.38 is another one here that we can look at. Romans 8, verse 38. It says, For I am persuaded... Actually, let's, let me back up. To verse 30, or 33, it says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. 
Who is he that condemneth? Now remember some of these things because they're going to have, have to do with some of the other words that we're going to look at. Who is he that condemneth? Is it Christ died? Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Those are all, those are all trials and siftings, right? Those are all temptations, and they're all uh, hardships and afflictions that we go through. Is that going to separate us from the love of God? Does God not love us because we're experiencing all those things? Absolutely not. It says, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, all what things? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God is the God of all grace. What kind of grace? Electing grace. Loving grace. He has loved us. What other kind of grace has God given to us and shown us? The grace of imputed righteousness. He has elected us, He has loved us, and He has imputed Christ's righteousness to us. We are made the righteousness of God in Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 21. It says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We are made righteousness by the death of Jesus Christ. Not by our actions. Not by our obedience. Not by our religiosity. We are made righteousness not by working the works of God. Not by doing the works of God. Not by obeying the commands of God. We are not made righteous or kept righteous by those things. That right there, the Bible says that. That we are made the righteousness of God. How? By the one who was made sin for us. In Him. We are righteousness in Him. The God of all grace has given us righteousness. Who doesn't have righteousness? That's grace. To have something, to get something that we don't deserve. Something that's not ours. Election, we don't deserve it, but God's given it to us. It wasn't ours, but it is ours now. Why? Because God gave it to us. Love, He didn't owe us love. Matter of fact, the Bible teaches that God doesn't love everybody. He only loves His elect. And those who are in that elect, Christ Jesus, He loves us. He has given us righteousness, who are His people. And his people alone. And it didn't come on our works. It came on Christ's back. By his blood. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 30. It says, But of him, God, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, there it is. Christ has made unto us righteousness. 
In God's eyes, our righteousness comes from Christ. What, however righteous Christ is, that's how righteous Mike Smith is. If I be his, I'm as righteous as he is. If you be his, you're as righteous as Jesus Christ is in God's accounting. In God's sight. In the judgment seat of God, God deems you, whenever he's looking at all the evidence before him, he does not see anything on your record, even though your record is completely chock full of sin against him. He doesn't see that because Christ has taken that away and placed his righteousness in front of the judge, so to speak. He says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. Those words we're going to look at here shortly. But remember those. So we have this. Christ is our righteousness. I can Listen, I can never become more righteous than I am right now. I can never become more righteous than I am right now. I either have it all or not. In Colossians, in Colossians, I don't want to botch this, but in Colossians, Colossians, we read that we are complete in Him. We are complete in Christ Jesus. If I'm complete, does that mean that there's anything left? If I had this cup right here, and this cup, because I word complete, one of the words that it, that it means is full, complete. If I have this cup, and I fill it up, and you've all seen it, how whenever you fill something up, it kind of crowns over just a little bit because of water tension. It'll kind of go above the edge, come from the edge and come above. If I have that as full as I can be, can I get any more in it? Can't get any more in it. It's full. There ain't no more. And whenever I pour this out to the point where it becomes so dry that there's nothing in there, everything that was in there is out, right? It's completely gone. It's completely gone. Well, the Bible says that we are complete in Him. That means everything. Everything that we have need of in God's view that God requires, that God demands, that the law of God demands, that the, that the, that the wrath of God demands, everything that God requires, the Bible says we are complete in Christ Jesus. So there's no more for me to fill up. There's no more for me. I can't do anything because Christ did everything for me. To the fullest extent, to the greatest quantity, to the highest measure, to the, to the widest amount, Christ did it for us. And so I can't do any more because there isn't no more room. If the cup is full, I can't put any more in there. So what do I do? I just sit there and I say... Praise God, it's full. I didn't have to do nothing. Someone already did it for me. I often hear you kids whenever you're talking at the Dairy Queen, whenever you go into to, to work at night, somebody fills everything up for you, so in the morning when you get there, everything's ready for you to go to work. Sometimes you come in and somebody didn't do it. They didn't 
refill everything, stock everything, all like that. And what do you do? You come in? Why? Why do you do it? Why do you do it? I gotta do extra work. You gotta do work, right? Somebody didn't fill up the ice cream filler or whatever it is you guys fill up. You come in, what is it? Now I gotta do it. It's more, it's, it's, now you have to labor and you have to do something, right? But if you come in and everything is clean, everything is full, everything is ready to go, how do you feel? You're happy. Well, what do you do when you get there? Do you fill it up again? Do you add more on top of it? Do you clean it again? No, why? Someone already did it for you. So what do you do? You just sit there and say, well, thank you. I'm glad they did that. I'm thankful for that. That's kind of what we're talking about here. The God of all grace has said you are complete in Him. That's what grace is. You getting something that you don't deserve that is not yours but was given to you on your behalf. God has given us everything that He demands in Christ. What about acceptance? The grace of acceptance. We are accepted of God. God is a holy God and we are sinful people. How can we be accepted of God you know, most of the teaching that you hear in churches today, in modern churches today, is you have to accept God. How blasphemous is that? As if God is something that is even to be quibbled over, that can we accept Him or not accept Him? I thought He was God. Is He not God? If He's God, then who are we to say, well, well I'm going to put my judgment on God on whether or not I want Him or not want Him. The gospel is not whether you accept Jesus or not accept Jesus. Whether you think he's alright or not alright. Whether you want him or not want him. Whether you let him in your heart or you don't let him in your heart. That is not the gospel. The gospel isn't preaching will you let Jesus into your heart. Will you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. No, the gospel is, guess what? You didn't even know who Jesus was. In spiritual terms. You didn't even know Jesus. You didn't even want Jesus. You would never have come and believed on Jesus had not Jesus first loved you. Changed your heart, changed your mind, gave you spiritual understanding to even desire Him, to come to Him, to want Him. It isn't about Jesus, are you accepting Jesus? It's about, does God accept you? Has God accepted you? Because you're a sinner and God will not accept sinners. He hates sinners. He hates all workers of iniquity. The scripture says. So how can he accept you? Because you're a sinner, right? Again, in Ephesians chapter 1, we find it again. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein... Wherein what? His grace. Wherein what? His grace. He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. God has made us accepted, but it's not based upon our works. It's not based upon our righteousness. It's not based upon our actions, how dedicated we are, how much obeying we do. It's based upon the fact that we are in Christ Jesus. And who put us there? Well, we just read a while ago. Of Him are ye in Christ Jesus. 
So the grace of being put in, which is also election, by the way. Union. We call it eternal vital union. We were put in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. We were elected. We were, we were given electing grace. We were given loving grace. We were given imputed righteousness. And God, because of Christ's righteousness, because we are in Christ Jesus, has made us accepted to Him. We are acceptable to God because we are no longer viewed. No longer, I say no longer, we was actually never viewed. But we are not viewed as sinners, but we are viewed as saints. We are not viewed as sinners in God's eyes. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not sin. If God has not imputed sin to me, and has imputed righteousness to me, then I am not a sinner in the eyes of God. I am a sinner by nature in Adam, a whole lot of a sinner. I actually am a sinner. I still do sin. I will continue to sin until this body is laid down. But before God, before the throne of the sovereign king of all things, I am sinless. I've been made accepted as holy. I've been made accepted as righteous. I've been made accepted as obedient, as faithful, as loving, as perfect, Without spot, but it's because I'm in Him. I'm in Christ. That's why God looks at me that way. The grace of acceptance. We've been accepted in the Beloved. We didn't deserve that because we are sinful. But God doesn't see that because we are accepted in Christ. We get the grace of justification. Again, back to 1 Corinthians in chapter 30. We just read it. Who has made unto us justification. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto his wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. We are justified freely by his grace. That redemption... We've been redeemed from the curse of the law. We've been redeemed from sin. We've been redeemed back. That means God has bought us back. We were gods and we were lost in sin and trespasses. And God redeemed us from that. Brought us back. Came with God. Good story in the scriptures for you to go look at is the story of, uh, uh, of Gomer and how she uh, how how uh, how uh, the prophet uh, loved her, and yet she kept going out and was a prostitute and kept going out to other men, and he would always go get her. He even went and bought her. She was on the auction block being sold as a slave, and he went and bought his own wife and brought her back. It's a picture of us. We are sinners, and we are compl- always by this nature are wanting to follow after our sin, after our sin, after our sin. But God loves us, and He won't let us go, and He keeps going and getting us, He keeps going and getting us, He keeps going and getting us. Why? Because He loves us. He has redeemed us. He purchased us, and He's bringing us back to Him. Christ has redeemed us 
and has brought us back to God. Therefore, we have reconciliation, the grace of reconciliation. We have the grace of holiness. The Bible says, be ye holy, for I am holy. Does that mean start getting after those commandments of God so you can be holy? No, be ye holy, for I am holy. How are we to set our mind? How are we to account ourselves? Holy as he is holy. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, without holiness, no man can see God. Now, let's just pretend that all the other verses in the Bible aren't there, and that's the only verse that we have in the Scripture. Without holiness, no man, no woman, no child will ever see God. Do you, you measure up? No. There's none holy. Nobody's holy. If I start today, and I, if I could, and it's just an if, and it's not even a true if, it's an impossibility, but let's just play pretend and say I could keep all the laws of God perfectly from today forward. Does that mean I'm holy? No. It's not. I'm not holy. There's only one who is holy, and that's God. So if I'm to be holy, and without which I will not see God, if I'm to be holy, somebody has to be holy in my place. I have to have holy stamped in my column of what I owe. He owes holiness, boom, paid in full. Who paid in full my holiness? Jesus Christ did. By grace. He gave me holiness by His grace. I have His holiness. He has made unto us sanctification. He has set us apart as holy for Him. Can't get any holier. I cannot get any holier than what Christ has made me holy. Christ has made me holy. Not in my Adam man, but Christ has made me holy in Him. What about the grace of forgiveness? We need forgiveness. We aren't owed forgiveness. We don't deserve forgiveness. We have all sinned, come short of God's glory, but we are given forgiveness. The Bible says, There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Those are all legal things that we need, right? Those are the legal things that we need, but what about some experiential things? Forgiveness, I guess, would be experiential. What about a clear conscience? How many of us in here have, whenever Satan comes, what is he doing? He's coming and attacking our conscience. Saying, you're not doing enough. You need to get busy. You're a sinner. How can God accept you? How can you be accepted of God? You're not worthy of Him. You're not holy. You're not, you might think you're obeying, but you're not. Or you obey on the outside, but I know what you think. I know what goes on in your mind. I know what you look at when no one else is looking. I know what you think about when no one's thinking. I know what you do when no one else is around. I know. You know what you do. What does he do? He, he attacks our consciousness. And listen, false teachers do that whenever they teach false things about the gospel. It attacks our consciousness. Praise the Lord, God gives us the grace of a clear conscience, the blood of Christ sprinkled upon hearts. Look at Hebrews chapter 10.
verse 19, it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, what's in view here? He's talking about the holy of holies. And he's and remember, whenever the tabernacle was built, was given to Moses, and laid out the design, the dimensions, and how it was to be constructed, God told him, he said, you need to construct this exactly the way I tell you, and don't deviate it one bit. Don't make one change to how I told you to build this thing. And so Moses built that thing. Everything had a purpose and reason, because it all has a picture of Christ. And so he told him to build that. And the Bible tells us that that tabernacle that was pitched in earth is a picture or an example of the heavenly tabernacle. And so that's one of the reasons why it has to be exactly the way, because it's to it's to be a type or a symbol of that which is above. But it says here, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The only one that could enter into the holiest of the holies, and he did that once a year, was the high priest. And it was after he did all the purging, all the cleansing, he did all the things, put on the right clothes, did all the right things that God had said before he went into the Holy of Holies. He was the only one, and he could not come in there unless he came with blood. He had to come with the blood of the sacrifice because if he went in there, and he went in there unclean, if he went in there not doing it the way God told him to do it, if he went in there without blood, he would die. That's why they tied a rope around those priests' feet and they walked in in case somehow the priest did something wrong and they died. Nobody else could go in there. And they would have to pull them out with a rope because they couldn't go in. Or they would die. That's how God, how serious God was about not diminishing what Christ has done. That's why I warn you guys about false gospels that are out there. That's why I warn you to listen to God's Word and not the things of men that's outside there. Not that there aren't good preachers out there that we can listen and be edified by. You know, I'm hoping people are finding me edifying. I'm hoping what I'm preaching and teaching is the truth and that that truth is then by the Spirit of God edifying and building up those of the faith. Okay? I'm not saying that that's not it. But what I'm saying is, is I'm giving you these things and feeding you these things so that you can be built up in the faith so that when these times of testing, when Satan comes and preaching those things, you can stay steadfast in the faith and resist. Be established, not moved. But he says here, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest of holies. We don't have any boldness to come before God's throne because we are not holy. But he says here, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. The way that we can come in now, God has consecrated or he has set apart a way for us to come. See, we couldn't come before. We could never come apart from Christ. But he has set a way... Is set aside, consecrated away for us, and that's through the flesh of Jesus Christ, by His death. By Jesus dying has provided a way for us to come into the Holy of Holies and commune with God to bring our request to God to come before the throne of God and to make our request and thanksgiving known. That's why Jesus, whenever He died, the, the veil of that temple that separated the holiest of holies from the rest of the thing, 
It ripped in two. It started from the top and went down to the bottom. Why? Because God was showing that there is now no veil here that through Christ we all have access to God if we're His people. Verse 21, And having a high priest over the house of God, verse 22, here it is, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our body is washed with pure water. Why do we keep preaching the gospel and I keep pointing you to the God of all grace? Because the God of all grace has taken the blood of Jesus and sprinkled our hearts with the gospel to give us a clear conscience that we are not seen as sinners in His eyes, as we are not transgressors in His eyes anymore. I keep saying anymore. It's always been that way. But in our experience, there was a time where we thought, I'm a sinner against God. I need Christ. And so in our experience, we were transgressors, but now I realize, hey, I'm not a transgressor in God's eyes. I'm a saint. I'm a a holy. But in God's sight, it's been like that from the very beginning. He's always looked at it that way. He's consecrated that that we might be able to draw near, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. There's that word again. Without, to, If we're not wavering, that means we're established, right? We're settled. We're not moved to and fro with every wind of doctrine. That we might... Hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. The God of all grace has given us a clear conscience that we're not guilty. He's given us the grace of perfection before Him. There in Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 14. He says, For by one offering He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Not are being sanctified, but are sanctified. There's this notion in modern theology, in modern preaching today, that we are being sanctified more and more every day. And they take that word sanctified and then they make it to mean be more holy. To be sanctified or being sanctified means to become more holy. And so they think that we are becoming more and more and more and more holy, that we are sinning less and less and less and less and less. But the Bible here says that sanctification is a one-time thing and it was done and over with. And it was in Christ Jesus. It was in Christ Jesus. It was by Christ Jesus. And our perfection has already been given to us. As I said a while ago, I can't become more holier than I already am. Why? Because I'm perfect in God's eyes. Because Christ is perfect. But I could go on and on. What about pardoning grace? Do you need pardon from your sins? Well, we have pardoning grace in Christ. What about restoring grace? Have you sinned against God? Have you ran away from God for some time and you, you know, just kind of reveled in your sin a little bit? You're distant from God, maybe? Haven't been reading the Word? Haven't been studying the Scriptures? Haven't been coming to church? You haven't been doing all these things? You've just kind of been in your own little funk? And just decide, hey, I'm just going to get away from all of it for a while. You need restoring grace. Well, listen, 
The God of all grace can restore us from our constant falling. He holds us up. Do we need strength? Well, he tells us the God of all grace can strengthen you. Do we need reviving grace? Are we dead, so to speak, towards spiritual things? Just blah, going through life. Well, we can be restored. Not only restored, but revived. Be revived. Jesus says, and he said this to Paul, he said, my grace is sufficient for thee. Whatever the issue is, whatever the trial is, whatever the problem is, whatever anything is, God's grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because He is the God of all grace. And so everything that you have need of, whether it be legal in the sense of the courtroom before God for acceptance and salvation, Christ is everything for you. And the grace that is in Christ Jesus is sufficient for everything that you are required for in those legal things. But everything experientially in this time, as you experience not only your salvation, but that spiritual warfare of your flesh still wanting to sin and still trying to sin and doing all this stuff, but the Spirit that's in you saying, I hate that sin, I want to be like Christ, I want to do what's right, I want to live uh, uh, in an upright way, I want to do these things, but yet I keep finding that in my flesh I cannot do those things, and I here I am, a wretched man that I am. <clears throat> We find that in, in the experiential things, restoring, strengthening, reviving, clear conscience, all those things, that His grace is also sufficient for those things. He's given us everything that we need. So why do we preach God's grace? Why do we feed the flock? Why did Jesus tell Peter, feed the flock, strengthen the brethren? Why is He telling me today to you and for me for you to tell you today, look to Jesus and the gospel because that's where all grace is. Because the God of all grace has provided everything that you have need of by His grace. He's provided everything that you need if you're a child of grace. He says, But the God of all grace who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a little while, or suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Now, I just kind of want to put a nail in this, because we're done. I want to put a nail in this to show you that all this that I'm talking about is so that you might be sober, be vigilant, be vigilant, because the adversary, the devil, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And the way you resist this, the way that you overcome this, is by the gospel. It isn't by you standing strong. It isn't by name it and claim it. It isn't by you being something in and of yourself who has authority over demons. You resist this by having a right understanding of the gospel. See, nobody can tell you that you're unworthy because you continue to sin. Because Christ has taken your sin. If you know the gospel, then you know the wiles of the devil can't get to you because everything he's going to come to tell you is going to be that you're no good. And you say, well, all you got to do is say, tell me something I don't know. I already know that. I know I'm no good. But Jesus is. 
But to show that this is exactly what we're talking about, look, if you would, with me over to Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 12. We'll end with this. Revelation chapter 12. Look at verse 10. In fact, uh, I'm going to go back up and I'm going to read in uh, verse 7. Now I know there's a lot of interpretation of Revelation and what all does this stuff mean. And some may say, well that's talking about something way in the future or anything like that. I believe that what this is talking about is stuff that's going on right now. Okay, Stuff that's going on right now. I believe that this is symbolism that has to do with the Lord's church, the elect of God. Uh, I believe that this is has to do with spiritual things. Uh, but anyway, with that being said, it says that there was a war in heaven amongst God's people, the church. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels. And prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, For the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Now remember last week I told you, Satan's called called the accuser of the brethren. What does he do? He comes and he accuses us before God. They're sinners. You're a holy God. You said you will not pardon iniquity, and they're full of iniquity. How are you doing this? Why are you doing this? You are unholy to accept these people. He's accusing the brethren. But he's also an accuser to us. He's coming before us and he said, that's a holy God and look at you. You're a sinful person. He's never going to love you. He's never going to accept you. You're never going to get to heaven. You're not good enough. You better start being more religious. You better start being more religious. He's the accuser to the brethren and of the brethren. So he comes between God and man and he accuses man to God and he accuses God to man. But we find in the Bible, the Bible says that there is only one mediator between God and man. See, Satan's up not up there mediating your salvation or your condemnation to God. He may be coming and accusing, but he is not the mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Jesus Christ. And he is mediating to God on their behalf. They are perfect and holy and righteous. Here's my blood. I have paid their price in full. Therefore, God has accepted us because Jesus is our advocate. But he's also the one pointing to us and saying, God loves you. God has accepted you. You are forgiven. You are whole. You are righteous. You are perfect. You are holy because you are in me. I've done all that for you. I've done all that God requires for you. So that when we look to God, we look through Christ. Whenever God looks at us, we look through Christ. Christ is the center of it all. And here we see that in the midst of heaven, above everything, a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of His Christ. 
because the accuser of the brethren is cast down. He can no longer accuse his brethren because Christ has overcome him. And it says in verse 11, listen, and they, the brethren, those who were being accused, overcame him. But how did they overcome him? By being more religious so he can't say nothing about them anymore? That's what people want you to think. They want you to think, how do we overcome Satan and the, and the uh, guilt that he throws on us because of our sin? By being more righteous. We'll be more holy and he doesn't have nothing to say about you. No, how did they overcome him? Look, read it with me. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. How did they overcome by looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith. By looking unto the gospel, what Christ has done on their behalf. Not by looking at their righteousness, not by looking at their ability, but by looking to Christ. How did they overcome Satan in these fiery darts? By the blood of the Lamb. Brethren, I just encourage you that whenever preachers, teachers, moms and dads, brothers and sisters... Satan in the darkest of hours, or in the brightest of hours, I don't know. Whenever that comes and they start to tell you that you need to start ramping up that righteousness, you're not going to be happy to God. Overcome them by the blood of the Lamb. By the word of your testimony. That's what it said there. It said, it said come in full assurance of faith. Faith reaches out and says, I know what it looks like. I know who I am. But by faith, Jesus said, I'm not that. By faith, I see God promised that He would take away all my iniquity and remember my sins no more and forgive me. And as far as the east is from the west, He'll he'll remove my sins. And if He said He would do that, and He said that I'm justified and righteous and holy then I believe him. I don't believe Satan. I don't believe preacher Joe Blow, whoever he is. I don't believe that. I believe what God said. And so may God give us, once again, grace to even believe those things. Amen? Anybody have any questions, comments? Read verse 11, 1 Peter, chapter 5. One of y'all. One of y'all. The last word to say is To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There you go. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The God of all grace. Father, we're so grateful today for your grace. We're humbled by all that you are and all that you have done on behalf of your people. We thank you for Christ Jesus. Father, we're so thankful for the mercy, the grace, the salvation, the adoption, the removal of sin, the cleaning of the conscience, all the things that we've spoke about today. And may you keep those in memory uh, in our minds, Lord, as we come through those times that you allow the sifting to take place whenever Satan comes as a roaring lion. May we be overcoming by the blood of the Lamb. I pray today, Lord, that your word today has been a comfort to the people. I pray, Lord, that it's been an encouragement to them.
and that they are established in the faith uh, by the Holy Spirit. They've been taught of God today to trust and look to Christ alone. And that the works of religion will never make them acceptable to you, but only through your Son. And may they find rest in trusting in Him alone for their righteousness. We thank you again for this day and the time that we have together to worship. I just pray that you'll be with us as we leave today and that you might keep us until we meet again. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.